Hey everyone, I've got some exciting news. We're unlocking Southpaw Deep Space Nine Season 2 and making it available for everyone on our public feed. But if you love our work and want to be the first to listen to Season 3 as it's being released, head over to Patreon. There you'll find break-free versions of past SDS9 episodes, Southpaw and Fight Study, and our other bonus show, Fighters Brew. You'll also find our Liberation Martial Arts program, which is exclusive to our supporters. It's for beginner and advanced martial artists, as well as people just looking for fitness and rehabilitation. It's a gentle, wholesome, and embodied approach to training. Lots of individuals, trainers, families, friends, collectives, activists, and organizations are already using it. So if you want to support our work, and get early access to all our great content, including Season 3 of SDS9, go to patreon.com slash southpawpod and join our community. You can also go to southpawpod.com and find the links there or on our show notes. Thanks for listening and catch you soon. is Southpaw Deep Space Nine Season 2, where we analyze Deep Space Nine and Star Trek from a political and historical lens, episode by episode. I'm watching DS9 with fresh and hopefully less fan-biased eyes, and Scott is the veteran Trek fan who knows more context about the show. We are discussing Season 2 of DS9, Episode 7, Rules of Acquisition. Scott, can you tell us about this episode? I'd love to. So Rules of Acquisition, obviously named after the book of the Ferengi people for which they base many of their laws, creeds, and attitudes, is the main title of the episode. And we we, we get to Quark's bar and it is popping off. Quark is playing Tongo, which is a card roulette combo sort of game with Dax, who is excellent at it. And while Curzon, one of Jadzia's previous hosts for the Dax symbiote, was good, Jadzia points out that she is even better. There's a newer waiter person named Pell, who is Ferengi, who's quoting all the scripture and like has all the cool lines and like really knows what they're talking about and trying to make a good impression, you know, about the 280, 285 rules of acquisition. And they're all talking a bit about chauvinism and sexism and the Ferengi. And it turns out that Zek the Negus is coming and wants Quark to be an ambassador to host a conference with the Gamma Quadrant with some Gamma guests at the station. <laughs> and in a goodwill gesture and negotiation, the Negus reluctantly gives 50,000 kilos of Brizzy nitrate, which would greatly help the Bajorans rebuild. And that's through a little tete-a-tete. I'm going to say tete-a-tete a lot this season. Because I just really like it, and if I'm re if I'm using it incorrectly, 
I apologize. And, you know, language grows. And whatever this item is, the Bajorans could really use it. And Ben uses that in their argument. And the Negus says that in the Gamma Quadrant, there's this Tula Berry, which can make Tula Berry wine from the Bazi, will be the game that gets the Ferengi in the Gamma Quadrant just caking off. Pell points out that Quark, while in a good position, may also be the scapegoat if things go wrong. And he gets Pell to come with him. And then you see that Pell reveals that they're actually a female Ferengi. And she has cosmetic ears that she puts on top of her head. But the the women in the Ferengi tradition are definitely not supposed to be wearing clothes, working, quoting scripture, doing any of this. This is a wildly subversive, revolutionary move. At, at the negotiations for all this, things are getting hot. Elsewhere, Kira is getting a nice latinum jewelry from, from the Negus. Dax explains that the Ferengi are a lot more fun than their reputation suggests, and then people are more playing tango. Now, as the, as the negotiations are going, the original ask was for 10,000 uh, 10, berries, but now they want 100,000. Also, that's when Dax realizes Pell is a woman who is in love with Quark. And again, this goes against all mores of the Ferengi people. So the contact doesn't go well. The meeting doesn't go well. So they decide to go to the quadrant to make the deal, that being um, Quark and Pell. Ram is upset about Pell and finds her synthetic lobes. When Pell and Quark get to the Bozi to get the 100,000 vats, they find out that if they're to get that, it must be through the Dominion. Who are the Dominion? What are they? They're a key. They're a key to the Gamma Quadrant. I can't imagine that they'll be important later. Quark tries to get a name for Zek. Rom shows that Pell is a woman, and Quark passes out, and ensures Rom doesn't say anything. They've gone too far. If this was to be discovered they would lose a lot of their holding. And then he sees Pell and says, go away, go to, the, go to the quadrant, here's some latinum. It is clear that they have love for each other. And then when later on, when, they're work, when Quark and Zek are talking about their holdings and what they're going to do, Pell reveals who she is. And they all sort of bribe each other to keep their identity secret. And in retaliation, Quark will lose the Gamma Prophet holdings that he was promised. Pell, Pell leaves. Quark tries to pretend like he's not sad, but he is. They kiss. And then we see Quark sat at the bar, trying to play tango with Dax, but Dax knows, you're feeling it, bro. So, we start with Morn sleeping on a metaphorical park bench and the constable kicking him out. Yes. Then Morn looks into the bar for a place to stay, which makes it look like Morn is dealing with housing insecurity. And it's all part of the hints and illusions about Bajor and even the station that there's a lot of inequality within this new Bajor. The Federation itself might be luxury space communism, but that's not true for everything in this universe. 
now with the haves and the have-nots, it's a Dickensian way to bring us to the rules of acquisition. Absolutely. You can't have poor unless you have the rich. With the rules of acquisition, it seems like it's basically the Ferengi version of the wealth of nations. Now, people who watch Trek or perhaps even the writers might see this as some satire about capitalism, but this is pretty non-satirical and an accurate view of people like Milton Friedman and Murray Rothbard. Mm -hmm. Ferengi political economy is basically the Austrian school of economics, which is the most influential in Western economics. And they were the ones to implement neoliberal changes around the world, especially in Latin America and post-Soviet Union Russia. So we think the Ferengi are foolish and not realistic, but their political economy rules our reality. Now, there are many forms of capitalist imperialism in Trek, but the group they use to explicitly represent capitalism aren't the smartest or most innovative, but the ones most willing to exploit, which is true. But for capitalism to be truly effective, it has to hide its greed, which the Ferengi don't. Neither did the Austrian school. But that's where the neoliberals came in, basically taking their ideas, then not saying the main point of it out loud, but rather lying about it and saying it was for freedom and democracy, because that was better for PR than just saying something like, this is the rules of acquisition. Right. Something that I can at least appreciate about the Ferengi is that at least from a from a story standpoint and from an understanding politics standpoint is that they they don't front about what they're about they are virulently capitalist they are virulently willing to do anything include fuck over people they love for the end which is capital and in in the deep space nine star trek universe it's latinum i still haven't figured out the the exchange rate but it feels like 10 bars is quite a sum and and they're like capitalism is good i think of them almost as like ancaps that also believe in law i mean i think a lot of libertarians actually do believe in law but you know the libertarian libertarianism is is a myth that is told to some people to make people think that there is a left-leaning form of conservatism. but And I, I mess with some of their views, but for the most part, I don't think it's right. It doesn't work for me. A note to our listeners. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, like early releases of Southpaw Deep Space Nine, our fictional narrative podcast, Fighters Brew, break-free versions of our shows without interruptions like you're hearing now, bonus articles, Fighters Brew transcripts with extra content, Liberation Martial Arts Online, as well as our private chat group on Discord. You can also make one-time donations at Ko-Fi, or show your solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. Actually, anarcho-capitalism came from the Austrian School of Economics. Mm -hmm. So they wouldn't have been successful without the liberals. 
because kind of like the Ferengi, right? They're just too raw. They're too honest about their immorality. But the liberals are all about branding and marketing. So they were the ones that were able to take their ideas and disguise it and then implement it around the world and then exploit and benefit the ones who are already rich and the ones who have the ability to exploit. And because of that, I think because they have the foil of the Federation, they're able to be flamboyantly, boisterously capitalistic because they're like because it's such a ridiculous compliment to this this world that is supposed supposed to be post scarcity but they're on an outpost where they do need things and it's a good contrast to the stuffiness of the federation and even the cardassians but then because of that contrast you think oh Maybe stuffy is good. Maybe boring means like business as usual and everything is going great. But as I keep bringing up and as we keep seeing with the Cardassians, stuffy is actually when imperial capitalism, fascism is at its best. And what you will see with the development of the Ferengi people throughout, particularly Deep Space Nine, is that they are a people that are, they, they are actually quite like tofu they start absorbing the flavors of the things around them <laughs> yeah the way they're presented in the original not the original the star trek the next generation they're like more like feral less intelligent just like not given a lot of thought so the ferengi develop one of the many reasons that Trek lovers that love Deep Space Nine love Deep Space Nine so much is the development of the races that we will be introduced to in the show. And that's without really giving spoilers. But you can see right here that the Ferengi are being developed and grown and you're learning more about them. And and earlier we had some learning about about the Trill we learn about the prophets. And in the next episode, we learn a little bit about the past of some other characters. So this is this is this is a season of learning, and this is a show that allows us, because it's on a space station, to more develop what might have been characters of the week. And obviously, Morn is an analog of Norm from the show Cheers, of this, you know, drunk dude who's always having trouble and exploited to a certain extent and and one of the the one of the the bits is that he has a beautiful voice that at least up until this season we have never heard before and that he can't stop talking and for younger fans who may have never seen cheers one of the themes about norm the original norm is similar to this morn is that he was always broke and he was always unemployed, and he was always dealing with insecurity. So this also overlaps then, that same type of financial insecurity. Absolutely. Now, another interesting theme and the most nuanced part of this episode, in my opinion, is how they're showing that misogyny is not only different, but can supersede homophobia. When they think Pell is a gay man, well, that's not ideal, but court can still accept him. Even Dax isn't shocked by a gay Ferengi man. 
something that I didn't mention in my recap is there is a moment where Pell, not at, not female appearing, kisses Quark, and Quark just sort of dismisses it. So this episode has a bit of a Victoria Victoria vibe. It's a it's a film about a woman who wants to make it in the the business of musical theater a very long time ago and because she feels that she can't make it as a woman she pretends to be a man but then also pretends to be a man that can perform as a woman and perform as a man and i mean obviously appearances of these are definitely thoughts and ideas that were that came out at a time where more complex thoughts about binaries were not there the play doesn't completely age well but it is a bit of a hoot as far as the canon of of silly musical theater goes and it's hard to think about this episode without thinking about that so for everybody involved the shock isn't that pell likes quark it's when they find out pell is a woman because a gay man can still have male privilege. A gay white man can have male and white privilege. That's real. When you have intersecting identities, you can face discrimination in some vectors and privilege in others. This is why politics isn't as nice and neat as people wish it were. You hear white liberals say, they should know better. They, as in Black people, whenever they see one Black person show any social conservatism. But it's like, no, you should know better. Way to show your white power by essentializing. So that's why, to me, this is a very gray and the most nuanced part of this episode. So I was just thinking about Pell and being a character like that, trying to be one of the one of the first of of someone trying to break the mores of a of a society and possibly what that's like under like a feministic lens and a feminism lens. And I do understand my own privilege and my positionality, but I was reading, I was rereading the, the Zeno feminist manifesto, which is a, a futurist feminist manifesto that posits that what is really at the, the crux of future feminism is alienation. And to quote, um, that it seizes alienation as an impetus to generate new worlds, and and we are all alienated. But have we ever been otherwise? So I just think of the alienation component of of this when when thinking of Pell, and and I recommend anyone checking out uh, Xenofeminism through Verso Books. Uh, it's very dense, but I think it very much is consistent with some of the lines of inquiry I see with uh, with some of the characters in Deep Space Nine. So continuing with that thought and theme, this episode was isolating male privilege and misogyny as distinct forms of privilege and bigotry. But from a character development side, we saw Quark, as you mentioned, show humanity and love and charity. And then we get to something else, the first mention of the Dominion. So me watching this for the first time, I have never heard of that race until now. 
but they really teased it and made it ominous. So now the series has at least one goal, meet the Dominion. So in analyzing DS9 episode by episode, we can see that writing isn't just writing. There's writing for an episode, writing for a story arc, writing for a season, then writing for the series. Having several writer friends, it really isn't easy to be a writer. Scott, what were your thoughts about this episode? So as we get deeper, I'm going to have different types of scales. So as far as a mythology episode, I do have to give it a higher mark of of maybe a 3.5 because it's the first mention of the Dominion, which may or may not be significant in the story. And as a Trek episode, I give it a I give it a 3. I Some of the ideas age well, some of the ideas do not, and I don't really see Quark as queer-coded, So, but I do see Quark developing feelings for this character even before the reveal, which was interesting. I hadn't thought about this episode in 20 years. I think I skipped it the last time I did my rewatch. What do you think? I wasn't shocked by that because that's actually the more common trope whenever you do something like this. Whenever you do something where a character is hiding their gender, there's always a love story. And that typically is how they do it, is a character is falling in love with this other character before they get the reveal. And it's not doing it in some progressive way. It's doing it, I think, sometimes in a titillating way to try to really tease the audience for the reveal. And I think other times they do it from a romanticized version of love where it's about one soul loving another soul. It's about destiny and faith, which I think is also in many ways a very traditional view of love, even though it doesn't fall into a lot of the same conservative trappings. But it is also still like very much uplifting and glorifying this Victorian idea of love. I'm not saying that's what they were doing in this episode, but I'm just saying that something like that doesn't surprise me. It would surprise me if they didn't tease that because that's typically the norm, even in very conservative movies like Disney movies. You know, if they do something like this, they're always going to tease that beforehand. Scott, now can you introduce us to the next episode? The next episode is definitely very different from this one. It's called Necessary Evil. And I can't say much about it without, I don't know, I don't know how to describe this episode other than we get some backstories of some characters that you've been wanting to visit. Until then. Bye.